0: everybody thank you so much for joining us this afternoon i'm just delighted to be talking to my old friend well my longtime friend i won't say my old friend uh jonathan kellerman and he's sitting in a room where i have visited him and it's just absolutely beautiful and i want to come back to the idea that john has lived where he has lived for a long time and consequently there are bits of history and other things in this latest book the guest orchid that i thought really Enriched it. You had a good time with that, didn't you? Putting I always, it.
1: Have a, I always have a good time. If I'm not enjoying writing it, no one's going to enjoy reading it, is my philosophy. The only reason I do it is because I enjoy it.
0: Well, that's absolutely true. Um, from our many conversations, um, I can say that I know you have a really good time doing it. So let me just say, because today is Sunday and the book publish publication day is this Tuesday, right. which is um, February 6th. Six. Thank you. Uh, We don't have our signed copies yet, but they're somewhere between possibly the publisher and Jonathan and eventually. They haven't
1: arrived at my place yet. Right. Hopefully they'll arrive before I travel on the 19th. I'm sure they'll
0: arrive very soon. They'll probably come this week. But all I'm saying is if you want to order one of our autographed copies, it's probably going to be about a week before we get them from Jonathan and can ship them out. So, um, but if you don't order now, you might lose out. So I recommend that you do. The title is important to this story, The Ghost Orchid. But I wanna go back, I should never assume, and I fall into this trap, John, thinking that everybody who watches this is a longtime fan. But mm. the truth is there may be people watching this who never read one of your books or don't know who you are. And I thought a little um, a little bit of your professional history would be useful because some of this book, in fact, incorporates your, before you became a writer. So why don't you tell us a bit about who you were before you began to be a number one bestseller? <laughs> well, before I was a reprobate, after I
1: was a reprobate college student, Um, I I was a clinical child psychologist and a medical school professor at USC Medical School and head of a program at Children's Hospital of Los Angeles. So I work with children in a variety of situations for for many years. And for a five-year period, I did both jobs. I had five bestsellers while in full-time practice. We had a very large practice in Los Angeles. I had three other psychologists working for me and... We we had a very dynamic and vibrant group, so really enjoyed working with kids. And I think and I thought what I could bring to bear in crime novels, back when I uh, wrote the first one, when the bow breaks, my inspiration was really Joe Wamba. I don't know if people are familiar with Wamba. I don't know, but he was a LA police detective with a masters in English, and he was a good writer. And he was able to to meld his uh, special experience as a detective with his writing skills and, and really write some wonderful books. And I said, well, you know, I'm a psychologist. I'm privy to some interesting information and experiences a lot of people aren't. Perhaps I can do the same thing. Of course, that doesn't mean I could ever write about a patient. I never would, it's, it would be unethical. And of course that made me a better writer because I got to make stuff up. Good writers make stuff up. People who don't understand creativity Think that people are just writing a, a romana clay where they're taking real life mm-hmm. events, and in fact, less skilled writers will do that. They'll simply take a real life event and fictionalize it. But the really good writers like to make stuff up. That's 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 what we do. That's what we've been doing since childhood. Uh, I always say I'm getting paid very handsomely to do what got me in trouble in school, which is spacing out and making up stories. <laughs>
0: Good point. Well, I mean, you know, I I didn't even um, on Friday, the Brandeis University has a book and author luncheon here, and we've been the bookseller for it for a really long time. And one of the authors, um, her book was reviewed today in the New York Times. It's called The Sisterhood. And um, it involves the CIA. And I know because I've talked to her and other writers I know have belonged. They have to go through a vetting and approval process from the agency. Sure. You know, but you know, you do it to yourself, which I think is right. so interesting. Exactly. You know, you don't have to take it back to the medical school or the, you know, your professional organizations. You know, you are your own. Um, I don't want to say censor; that's not the right word. But you know, you're your own ethicist in writing right. your book. Right. I mean,
1: I think what I what I thought I I I could bring to bear is if I was writing about something of a psychological nature be it a therapy session or solving a crime, I could do it with authenticity. I felt, and I still feel, there have been almost no accurate portrayals of psychologists and psychiatrists, either in books or in movies or TV. Uh, they're usually either the shrink is crazier than the patient type of stuff. It's Bob Newhart, he's a wimpy guy, or evil type of Svengali, none of which is... Is accurate. There, there was a particularly horrible show in British TV called Cracker. It, it was just horrible. And you know, this guy couldn't hold on to his license for five minutes. It's just not going to happen. But of course, they like that. That whole um, I don't know. It, it, he he was crazy, and he was an alcoholic, and he was unethical and inappropriate. I'm not saying there are some people like that in in every field, but that's it's just not the way it is. So I felt I could. Uh, offer authenticity. And uh, for 40 years, that's what I've been doing.
0: You have been. Now, Not not all of your books are about Alex Delaware, but he is your name. Most of them are. He's your series character. And so Alex himself is a child psychologist, and he also winds up consulting for the LAPD. But this story, in a way, you kind of bookend it with um, a child called Derek. Is it Ruffalo or Ruffalo? Did you decide? Ruffalo, Ruffalo. Ruffalo, Okay. And um, and his story is yeah. could potentially be terrible. Um, and when you first present it, it looks as though there can't be any really. He's not part of the mystery plot, so we can talk about yeah. this a little. I,
1: I still don't want to give away too 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 much story, but yeah, he's he's a potentially very sad case. That's all I want to. I don't you know you know Barbara. I really don't like to talk about my my specific books. I don't oh. mind talking about writing. I don't mind talking about books, but I don't like to talk about specific books because I don't know I feel once they're finished it's up to the reader to take charge uh once I finish a book it's surrogate parenting and it's out of my head because I've been living with it for a year it's out of my head I moved on to the next book and you know like Kirk, Kirkus is a good example when they review a book they give away all the plot information it's it's, it's ridiculous so the whole thing about a, about a suspense novel or a crime novel, but let's just say that this poor boy is in a very unfortunate situation and it looks hopeless and we see what happens to him. But but it's a side issue because what I was trying to do is show the two sides of Dr. Alex Delaware.
0: Exactly. He lives in
1: two worlds. He, he still pays his bills handsomely by working mostly as a consultant on child custody and child injury cases, which I ended up doing quite a bit too. So I have a lot of, I had a lot of experience going to court, being an expert witness testifying, being in chambers, all that stuff. And then of course he works with Milo Sturgis where he, if he gets paid, it's not very much, but he's an adrenaline junkie and he really gets off on, on solving crimes. And he's a brilliant guy. And um, he just brings something to bear to, the, to a certain type of case. And uh, I, I just, when I created him, I just didn't know that it was gonna be a series, let alone the longest running crime series that I'm aware of ever. I mean, there's, I think, 40 books already in the series and I've written a couple of more. And even my non-Delaware books often feature a psychologist such as The, the Murderer's Daughter, featured Grace, Grace Blades. and I have another one called The Conspiracy Club, Jeremy Carrier. So i you know you write what you know to some extent i try to know as much as possible so i have as many things to write about it well.
0: well what i the reason i brought it up uh, was because uh, i wanted to say that there are more to your books than just the crime investigation yes because you know we have alex as you point out still you know doing private work and so forth but then yeah us a little bit about alex's partner because she too has a really interesting sideline which again is something you know a lot about <laughs> the woman
1: he lives with robin robin castagna she is a luthier she makes wonderful world-class string instruments mostly guitars how this happened was when i was writing when the bow breaks and i began writing in 1981 in between patients and was published in 1985 I wanted to avoid cliche at every turn just to avoid cliche. And I figure what's more interesting than a couple where the man is dealing with human emotions and feelings and the woman is dealing with power tools. (laughs) And part of it was from my own experience with, with with my wife, the famous Faye Kellerman, who's a wonderful novelist. But before Faye was a novelist, you know, she's trained in dentistry, so she has some manual skills even though she never practiced. And when she was pregnant with our second child, 1981, which is when I set out to write this this book, uh, I used to take my, uh, my guitars to a fellow named Lloyd Baggs who had a shop downtown LA and she visited. And she said, you know, it's kind of like dentistry. There's inlay work, but there's no blood. So she decided to apprentice to Lloyd for summer and she built this really, amazing guitar. She built one guitar. She never did another one. But everyone who's played it says, this is fantastic. It's a fantastic instrument. I still have it. And so I said, why don't I translate that into this particular couple? Now, you need to understand when you're not published yet, you don't know this book's going to get published. You certainly don't plan on writing a series. All I wanted to do was to get published because I had published a lot of other things except full-length fiction, and I've been writing compulsively since the age of nine. And so I was a failed writer with a really good day job for many, many years. I won literary awards, I won writing contests, I published nonfiction books and scholarly stuff and academic stuff and short stories and cartoons, everything but full-length fiction. And so I was really, really trying to, to give it my all and be disciplined and thank God it, it got published. But it was uh, the first novel was bought as what I call a small book. Publishing is a, is a business of self-fulfilling prophecies. Uh, some books are bought as big books and they're promoted. And sometimes they do well, sometimes they don't. My book was bought as a small book, very small advance. I calculated I got three bucks an hour to write the book. And I said I could have flipped burgers at, at McDonald's and done better. And then I said to myself, "Well, you know, I feel vindicated because after all those years of struggle. I am now a novelist and not a delusional schizophrenic." I said, "But I don't know how often I can afford to do this because I have a family to support. And I'm doing very well as a psychologist. I, if if I'm making 150, 200 bucks an hour doing that, I can't get work for three bucks an hour." So then it became a bestseller, <laughs> to no one's surprise, more than my publisher. I. I Still don't understand it uh, and it, it, it took them a couple of books to understand that the that the Delaware novels were gonna be a thing so I I switched publishers but um, so it was not an expectation when I did any of this that this was this was going to get published let alone be a bestseller let alone be the first of dozens of bestsellers and let alone be a series so then you have to make decisions of what you want to do with this series now there's the Agatha Christie novel, which I'm not putting down. They're classics. They're they're basically puzzles. And the characters don't evolve. Poirot is Poirot. First Poirot, last Poirot. Same guy, same mannerisms, doesn't change. Character development was not Agatha Christie's strong point. Her strong point was creating puzzles. And she sold a billion books, so who's going to argue with it? I decided if I was going to write a series, he was going to evolve and he was going to be a human being. And so that's what I set out to do. And therefore, he's changed over time and he's evolved and we're learning more about the other side of him. But I try to do it in a very judicious manner. Those things are parceled out very slowly because the, to me, and I agree with David Mamet on this, it's all about the story. You know, people talk about character characterization and story as if they're separate things, which is nonsense. It's just nonsense. Characterization does not exist by itself without a story, without a story. And of course, you, you can have a story-heavy book with lousy characterizations, with cardboard cutouts, but you can't have characterization without a story. And I agree with Mammon, it's all about the story. The, char- the characterization, whatever that, that evolves with the story itself. Tell the story, the rest will fall into place if you know what you're doing. So that's what I try to do. Tell a good story, uh, keep the reader guessing in a fair way. Very few people ever guess my endings, but I play fair. It's all in there. We just, hopefully it's, it's subtle.
0: You know? <laughs> sure. well, um, so the other, the other key character, we've talked about um, Alex and his partner is Milo um, yeah. Milo was was he among the first outrightly gay sluice he
1: was there was another guy named jo, Joseph Hansen who wrote That's about right. a, gay, a gay pre a gay right. private eye but they were small small print books and uh, and he was a private eye he was not a cop. I came to this for the same reason. When I'm, I'm trying to create this, this is my swan song. This is my last stab at getting publishing after writing nine novels over 13 years that got rejected, often in a very nasty way. I'm, I'm very pleased that all the people who wrote those nasty letters, none of them are in publishing anymore. <laughs> Haven't been for a long time. And you know some of them are saying, oh, what a schmuck I am. But um, I was avoiding cliches and I knew, if I'm going to write a crime novel, which I set out to do, we have to have a cop. I, I, I really hate amateur detective books in which, you know, some nun solves a problem and there's no cops. and, That's all fine and dandy, but you need any sort of realism. You have to have a homicide detective. But then, you know, it was a cliche in those days. In the 80s, it was a hard boiled, you know, hard drinking, hard smoking. So I said, you know, LAPD is, officially has no gay cops. But I knew for a fact that wasn't true, because I knew them. I had friends who were a gay guy. I had friends of friends. So I said, what if we have a guy who's you know, big and tough, not particularly effeminate, but he's gay? And it's, I, it's what I called gay, but so what? Because I felt we obsess way too much on what people do in the bedroom. Who cares? You know, who cares what people do in the bedroom if it doesn't hurt someone else? And why should that intrude on their job? So I created a gay detective. And I didn't make it as if there's no issues. It was, we've evolved him through the years. And in one of the books, the murder book, we go through his history in retrospect when he was a young rookie and all the horrible things he had to deal with when he's he's a cop, he's in the closet, and LEPD is going to gay bars and busting heads still then, and you know. so. Milo was created out of whole cloth. And once again, here's the whole notion of people think, don't understand the creator process they think I know who he's based on. He's this guy, he's that guy. He's a, no, he's not. He's made out of whole cloth. Delaware has some similarities to me, some superficial because I write what I knew. I was a psychologist, he's a psychologist. I'm left-handed, he's right-handed. He's a lot handsomer and thinner and younger and all that stuff and braver. But Milo was created out of whole cloth he's not based on anybody so once again you don't know it's going to be a series so now i got these two guys it's it's a bestseller i said oh maybe i can afford to write another one i'm still working full time in my practice long hours so i'm back to my garage at 11 p.m for 1 a.m writing and uh I wrote second novel that became a bestseller do a third one over the edge mega bestseller huge bestseller Then I took a break and wrote a non-Delaware book then I went back then I decided I wanted to continue and went back and wrote and wrote Silent Partner the fourth the fourth Delaware novel and so so on and so on but that's where Milo comes from and they have become best friends and I thought what an interesting notion that a gay man and a straight man
0: could be best friends why not not? not. and you mentioned that several times in the Uh book Alex refers to Milo Uh as his best friend and when this Uh book starts they are reacting to events in the last book. And so oh, there's yeah. a, a real strain on their relationship. Alex was hurt. Spoiler here, he survived yeah. the yeah. last book. Yeah. So he's, you know. Um, Milo's feeling guilty
1: for the right. situation. And I mean, you have to deal with that stuff. And, and uh, it's, you, you know what I found? I found that I've met quite a few homicide cops and mostly they're gentle souls. They're not the tough guys you see in the movies. They're much more upset by this stuff than I am, than I would be. I worked with death and dying for years. I, I worked in oncology. It's not that I'm hardened to it, but I was able to function day after day. And I find that a lot of are way more sensitive, very sensitive guy. So he's that kind of guy. And of course he's bothered by it despite a gruff ex- exterior you know, there's another thing I don't like about the portrayals of the movies. The cliches are always, oh, there's—they're always making jokes and and bantering around a crime scene. It happens. It happens. People use use humor to deal with stress, but most of these guys take it really seriously. You know, they do. You, they're not, very upset by it.
0: I like the fact that, you know, you don't want to have some Teflon people who go through huge yeah. trauma in a book yeah. and then there they are as though nothing ever happened. Yeah, exactly. Next exactly. Book, you know, That's a, a good just, way
1: to put it. You don't yeah. want Teflon people. They're human beings. Human beings are affected. Uh, there's, there's images people can't get out of their heads once, once they're in, but they still choose to do the job. Most people who become homicide cops really, they're the social workers of the world. They do more good than all these nonprofits. I mean, they really want to help people. They really want to speak for victims. They really care about people. As a as a group, they're they're a good group of people.
0: Well, I think it's great the way that you have their friendship. And but you know, you also have some marvelous plots. And I want to mention a bit about. The geography, because there are a couple of important locations. Well, locations always, I yeah. think, a part of character and whatever happens. Sure. But in chapter 27, I marked this because I didn't know this. I thought it was great. Burton Way, named for Burton Green, the developer largely responsible for creating Beverly Hills, yeah. had become South Santa Monica Boulevard decades ago, now referred to as Little Santa Monica by the locals. It's a commercial street, barely wide enough for the four lanes allocated by the city. Paralleling its larger northern sibling, and confusing tourists, and it does. It It really does. There's two Santa
1: Monica boulevards. We call it Little Santa Monica and Big Santa Monica. Right. If you're used to it, but yeah, it was it was changed, and who knows why it was. I think there was some rich person who wanted to change it, but you know, there's always some skullduggery going
0: on in municipal politics, but... Sure, yeah. but I mean, no the ordinary person wouldn't have any reason to know about Burton at all, or who developed yeah. Beverly Hills, or what, so I like the fact that you put that in. I remember when we came and stayed there, in fact, Rodeo Drive is in this book, and we stayed right where it comes out, and I, I still regret the fact that I walked up to Montclair and fell into evil ways and actually bought a Montclair jacket on Rodale Drive and I thought, it's the only time I'm probably ever going to do this, so why not? But, you know, making our way to your home through, because um, yeah. you live in a very, you know, old for California yeah. anyway, yeah. well developed yeah. neighborhood and it yeah. and it was you know, it was a different view because as you know, I went to Stanford and I would go back so and it, forth yeah. from Los Angeles. In fact, at the very First football, first Stanford, I think it was UCLA football game. We drove down as freshmen to see it. And I think it was the year Disneyland had just opened. <laughs> and there it was out there, you know, and it literally was Orange Fields and oh, yeah. you know, everybody. Orange could, County. Yeah. Well, exactly. do you, do you, I'll,
1: I'll give you a tidbit. You know how Rodeo Drive got its name? No. It was Rodeo Drive. Rodeo is Spanish for Rodeo because it, you could have horses, and that's where you'd ride your horses, up mm. that street. Yeah, they, they were rodeos there. They would ride their horses down Rodeo Drive. I over. love
0: it, and now it's like luxury shopping. person. it's luxury ride. shopping,
1: and when you get north of Santa Monica, it's what we call the flats. You right. Know, the nice
0: it's amazing how, you know, I mean, from my perspective and from yours, how California has evolved over, oh, you yeah. know, from the time I first went there till now. But let me move on and say that this book is called the ghost orchid, which yeah. it, it turns out to be an actual flower. Oh, um, yeah. And it is, it is apparently native to Florida. And so here's what we find out in the book. <laughs> it's a very strange flower, blooms infrequently, has stocky scales instead of leaves, and this twiggy deal here for a stem that's so thin it's nearly invisible. More to the point, it doesn't root in soil, just attaches itself to tree trunks and dangles. Give it nothing, giving, sorry, gives nothing back to the tree. So it's basically a parasite, though it does no harm. Where does it grow? Remote pockets of the Florida swamps. And that is another part of the book, you right. know, but it reminds me of the first time that I drove to Beaufort, South Carolina, we were at Hilton Head and the mistletoe was hanging off the trees. Oh yeah. It, you know, it's a parasite. It's exactly like yeah, the ghost or Spanish moss, the same thing, you know, it's, it's, it, I'm not going
1: to get into the details why I call it that, because that's part of the story, but it's an interesting metaphor, let's just say. Mm -hmm. Um, Orchids in general are quite fascinating, but the ghost orchid, it's it's not a very pretty flower. It doesn't even look like a flower. It looks like a white shrimp. It's so bizarre looking. Uh, And I just thought it would be an interesting metaphor for a title and very relevant to the story of this particular book. But you know, you talk about L.A. Just to go back for a second, I've always said that L.A. is a character in my novels. Mm-hmm. I don't think for some people, I don't think it's a coincidence. In my opinion, the best American crime crime novels have been written in Southern California, either in L.A. or in Santa Barbara. You've got Ross Macdonald, you've got Chandler, you've got all the other guys who wrote Horace McCoy and David Goodis, You've got Sue Grafton. You've got all the other people who write about L.A. and Michael Connelly, and and you know. It's, it's not a coincidence. You would think New York, with all its problems, would spawn these great series. The only great one, in my opinion, is Larry Block. You know, mm-hmm. uh, his stuff. It, it, it's just, I don't know why, but there's something about LA, and people always ask, ask me about it. The best I can come up with is that LA is, and has always been, as long as I've been living here, I've been living here since for 1959, It's like a third-world nation. There's always a huge disparity between the haves and the Mm have-nots. Huge. Even more so now, but certainly even in the 50s. And that leads to tension. The other thing is the weather. Even the bad guys stay inside when it gets really cold. But if you've got good weather most of the year, plenty of – I mean, it's not a coincidence. The highest crime rates in the world are in Latin America. Things get hot. People. You know, when, when Chandler writes about the Santa Ana winds and a woman's hand closing over a knife ready to stab her husband, he, he can do that to you too. But the other thing I think is really relevant is that LA has, has evolved. When I grew up here as a child, there were other businesses other than Hollywood. Hollywood was a factor, but it wasn't totally dominating the city. You had aerospace, you had normal regular stuff. My, my dad owned an aerospace company, you know, Now it's all about entertainment. It's totally dominated. And this is a business that trucks in fantasy. And trucks, it's also a business full of horrible human beings. Uh, I don't know whether you read the novel, I'm sure you read whether people read the novel Get Shorty by, by Elmore Leonard. They've seen the movie, but the novel itself, Dutch wrote a great book. And I know why he did it, because in his early days, he made a living dealing with Hollywood and he hated it. You know, books weren't selling, he was selling screenplays and adaptations. Well, if you really think think of the plot of that book, you have, you, have, you have Chili, who's played by John Travolta in the movie, but in the book, he's a bone breaker for the mob in Florida. He's a terrible guy. He beats people up, he's horrible. He comes to LA, gets involved in the film business, and is just appalled and horrified by the terrible people that he meets. And that's the point of Get Shorty. and and it's just, you know, Harvey Weinstein's just a good example. I mean, the casting couch used to be a joke. That was a running gag. It's just a business full of liars and cheaters and not too bright people who got very, very rich, and uh, a lot of skullduggery here, so I think that that helps also.
0: Also, a lot lot of refugees, you know, a lot of, and and a lot of Immigrants, not yeah. not necessarily in the sense that we are talking about politically today, but it's been a place that people come to pursue their dreams. It's also a place that during tumultuous times, you know, talent from other countries came and contributed, oh, no. oh, you know, there yeah. were many Germans, for example, you know, yeah. during the, before the war and, you know, it started, I, I didn't know this, but one of the things I like best about crime fiction, John, is in addition to being entertained, you can learn really great stuff.
1: You really can.
0: because. And so I read a couple, or maybe I even edited a while back, I didn't realize that the film industry started in New Jersey and that it was Thomas yeah. Edison Tom and Simpson. he was a monster you know a yeah, terrible oh, person. He was a terrible person, terrible person. and he made yeah. it so awful that people fled to California you know to try to start again um and, he was like Henry yeah. Ford a terrible person just a oh. terrible <laughs> I mean I mean stayed in in, you know around Detroit for a long time, but Edison almost single-handedly drove the film industry to to relocate in California. Part of it was the weather, and part of it was they didn't have to have sound stages in the early days because of the weather in the whole bit. But if if Edison hadn't been so horrendous, New Jersey might in fact be the (laughs) focus
1: of the film industry. I I think the weather is a big deal. You go to Burbank and you can shoot
0: movies. 10 months out of the year. Uh, and you could come to Arizona and you could shoot Westerns in Monument yeah. Valley. And you know, exactly. all this. or in New Mexico,
1: you know, yeah. it's no, but LA is just a strange place. And I think the other thing is exactly what you're saying. This place people come and then there's nowhere else to go. You know, there's a, there's a movie, Truffaut made a movie called The 400 Blows about a child This child's running away. He, he gets her a certain point of water in France and then there's nowhere else to go. And there was a, I saw that in college, it was a very striking state in my head, and I use that in my novel, Billy Straight. Billy Straight is about a, you know, a child on the run, mm-hmm. and uh, he, gets, he gets the Pacific Ocean, and then where do you go? When I was a, a psychologist, this really impressed me. Before I'd see a child, I'd meet with the parents and take a, a, a comprehensive family history. I want to know, What's what's going on? What's the family like? So one of the things you probe and ask about is the extended family and your support system. And I was amazed at how people had none. So many people had moved out, left their families behind in the Midwest or back East, had no contact with them for whatever reason, or certainly weren't close, close enough. They had no social support. It was a very isolated type of place, Southern California. And it made it interesting as a psychologist it also made an interest, because that's not the life that I grew up with. I grew up in a, in a community where I still have friends for 60 years. My kids have friends. We have a lot of kids. We have, lead a, a rather conventional life because we've been here a long time. But, but these people were immigrants in the sense of coming, and not necessarily from other countries, but coming from the Midwest, coming from other states, coming to California to find themselves to escape. And, and sometimes they did, sometimes they did. Right, a... well,
0: I mean, it was the whole California dream. You know, yeah. I had a choice. I was a fortunate person in that I could have gone to college when I graduated from high school in 1957, anywhere I wanted to. I yeah. was really lucky. And I ended up at Stanford knowing very little about it because of the California dream. You know, it was such a, a compelling thing. Yeah. But even the other thing that is precedes your you know, you and me to a great descent, but also had a lot to do with how Southern California developed was the defense industry and World yeah. War II. Because, you know, when the war, I mean, in San Diego as well, but, you know, yeah. when the war in the Pacific started, you know, it drew all kinds of people to, you know, military bases and so forth in, in California. And, you know, that caused people to relocate as well. well
1: that's why my family moved to California. My parents grew up rather poor, both both of them. Uh, they finally bought a. I mean, when I was born, we lived in the slums in the Lower East Side. My mom said it was just myself, my parents, in one room. She said you could put a bottle and it would roll down, <laughs> and and it was one room with a with a bath maybe. And she said I right, I was a good baby. She goes she she'd wake up and there I was staring at her. I hadn't cried or anything. Then we moved to the projects, in Long, the Ravenswood projects in Long Island City, which is now the ninth most dangerous place in New York, last time I checked. And then they finally scored a tiny little, like, 800-square-foot house in Bayside, Queens. Mm. And my dad, and my dad, they had never lived in a house. My mom grew up in tenements. My dad grew up in Harlem. And, and then the city condemned it for a freeway. So my dad said, to hell with this. I'm starting. I, you know, he had worked for other companies. He was starting his own business. Uh, doing electronic components, he said, we're just moving on and we just packed up in the middle of the year, moved to California and no one would no one would rent to a family with three kids. And so we lived in a motel for a while and uh, you know it was it was quite interesting. I liked it. my parents were appalled, but I liked it because that had a swimming pool so you know so so l a was was a different place and yes, the defense industry was a, was a big deal. You don't have so much of that now. it's I think it's the media is just obsessed with celebrity and with and with uh, the film business and, and with it, it's just that kind of town. And Woody Allen's line is it's funny, he says you you mellow so much you ripen and rot. Yeah, wow. I love a great line. Yeah, I love LA, but it's a dumb set. We don't have a good art, a really good art museum the way other cities do. We have a pretty good symphony, but it's just a there's so much stupidity in the city, but I love it because it's great to write about.
0: You know? It is great to <laughs> write about. Yeah. So this discussion, this is completely off track, but sort of yeah. pointing out what I had to say about people coming to California for interesting reasons. I've never told you about my professor, Ivan Ivanovich Stenbach-Furmore, have I? <laughs> no. no. So here, here's the story. So um, I've always liked languages, and so when I... I think when I got to be a junior, I decided um, that I would learn Russian. So I enrolled in, you know, beginning Russian, and he is the professor. And, you know, San Francisco has Russian Hill, and, you know, so he would take us up there. But the thing I love the most, I had him for two years till I graduated. He was a white, he was a Russian who escaped from the revolution across to Vladivostok and came down to California and San Francisco, you know, was kind of a refuge, hence Russian Hill. So he eventually ended up teaching Russian at Stanford, but here was my favorite part, and this is when the Cold War is really booming, but before Vietnam. On weekends, he taught profanity in Russian at the Army Language School in Monterey, and the reason is, and I think it's true, that the people running the spy school felt that if they sent some guy into Russia... Uh, fluent in Russian, and then something terrible happened, and he couldn't do the Russian equivalent of like, "Oh shit," yeah. you know. He would instantly be out so, it. So, hilarious. isn't that's it great? great. Oh, that's I, great. But, I mean, he took it really seriously. He would drive to yeah. Monterey every that's week. Right, um, and well, that's course, part and, of the vernacular. By the way, Stanford. Do you know how Stanford started? You know, do you know the? I arts? do. Oh, I do know the whole story. Yes, and you know, there's now a wonderful book by a now professor emeritus named Richard, and I can't think of his last name, and this just came up the other day, and he wrote a book about who murdered Jane Stanford, and he's made a really good case that, in fact, she was murdered. She was poisoned wow. in Hawaii, and and the heavy suspects, are you ready for this, are like Dean Wilbur and all because the university was so panic-stricken that she was going to change her will and, you know, wipe out the university. That they, they are heavy suspects in the Unsolved crime, but it's pretty clear that she yeah. was, in fact, poison.
1: Nothing would surprise me. I had a professor at UCLA named Dave David Sears, and his father, Robert Sears, was the dean of Stanford girl, very, very, very famous psychologist, the whole family. He and his mother, and, and Dave would tell me, he says, you know, I was a kid and I'd go to these faculty meetings at our house. And all these liberal professors were so racist. They were saying the most racist things would know, in the privacy of my parents' home. He, he told me the whole thing. But, you know, Stanford started because Leland Stanford's kid didn't get into Berkeley. So he said, I'll start my own university.
0: I'll show you. And then he died. You know, that was yeah. the tragedy of Mrs. Stanford's yeah. life is that yeah. the boy was so young. But, yeah. you know, I mean, you know, they had tons of money and then no child and, you know, and a farm. And, you know, it's still called the firm, um, all that land. But anyway, we digress. But my point I was- I used to do
1: research up there, you know. Did you? When I was no, a children's, yeah, I collaborated with Ernest Hilgard on on uh, hypnosis for uh, as analgesia for children with cancer. I didn't
0: so I used know. to go up there. Yeah. Now we've traded stories that we've, and all the time we've talked, we've never talked about either of those subjects. Anyway, I agree with you that California certainly is, you know, a place where- um, crime fiction has flourished and, yeah. you know, flourished in film. Flour- we left out San Francisco and Hammett, but yeah. you know, I think the it's bulk California. of it, I know the bulk of it, I think really is. Um, Santa you know, Barbara down. You yeah, Ross McDonald and Sue and so forth. But, and and you know, Margaret Millar,
1: Margaret Millar, who's unsung. Wow. I'm actually going back and reading some of her novels. She
0: right, well, she, just just yeah. she was married to Ross McDonald. She was Canadian, actually. She yeah. was another transplant to yeah. California.
1: So is he from Michigan. But the funny thing, the two of them had this oh, sorry about I gotta turn that off. Uh, the the um, they they live together. If if you look at pictures of Margaret Millar, she looks like a a, a club woman from from Montessori. She's got the white hair, she's got her poodle, and she's in the garden club, and then she's writing these dark, dark novels. Very, dark. Very, very good stuff.
0: Yeah. Well, um, anything else you'd like to say about The Ghost Organ? Well, all I can say is
1: I do my best. Uh, I'm kind of tickled in that I've been doing this for so long. And and what the reviews all say now is, you know, this is such a long-running series, and yet the quality is really high. Kellerman doesn't phone it in.
0: Um, no, that's I don't very turn true. Don't them
1: out. I, I approach every book the same way. Um, I, I, if I... If I wasn't enjoying it, it's hard work. When I finish writing, I'm tired physically, but I really love it and I really enjoy it. And I'm really grateful to the wonderful people who read my books, who enabled me to do this job because it's really a cool job, you know? And uh, I never thought that that's what I'd be doing my my entire life. It was a dream come, I mean, being a bestseller is like being a major league pitcher, you know? You. You, you you may fantasize about it. I never fa- fantasize about it because I just wanted to get published. I mean, being a bestseller was like, well, that's was a whole icing
0: on the cake. But in yeah. addition to the fact as says John's still dwelling in the commercial world here, in addition yeah. to being a bestseller, I did not say that he has won the Goldwyn Award, the Edgar Award, the Anthony Award, and a lifetime achievement award from the American Psychological Association and been nominated for a Seamus award. Now, for those of you who don't know a lot about crime fiction, the Edgars, the Mystery Writers of America Edgar Allan Poe Award is basically the Oscar of mystery writing. And the Seamus is basically the Private Eye Association doing the same thing. Um, And the Anthony is um, from um, Badgercon, which is the world, wasn't I, no, it was Left Coast Crime because you and Faye we were We were at Left Coast Crime, yeah. We went out to dinner at one of those fancy yeah. Hawaiian restaurants, but you were the guest <laughs> of honor at Left Coast Crime, but yeah. I'm not sure that was an award, I think, because you've been the guest of honor at various things. Yeah.
1: So. You have to be aware of all these honors because it means you're getting old, basically. <laughs> Lifetime
0: achievement is, definitely means yeah. that you've lived long enough. You yeah, know?
1: I, think, I think it's really important I speak to Stephen King about this and Dean Koons and guys like that. Those of us have been doing this steadily for a long period of time. And Faye the same way. And Sue Grafton, a blessed memory. We all what we had in common is we saw it as a job. Right. Inglorified. You we know, don't sit around waiting for inspiration. We know that inspiration comes from, from work. And that's that's psychological truth. Um, attitude change follows. Physical change follows action, uh, action first. The act of writing gets you creative. You don't wait to get creative. So those of us who treat it like a, it's a wonderful job. Um, I never use the word career. It's just a great job. And and uh, and we take it seriously, we take it professionally. I don't write in my pajamas, you know, I get dressed and I shave and I shower and I just as if I was going to the office doing something else and I sit down and I take a professional approach to it. And I would hope the readers can really appreciate that and sense that, that I'm taking them seriously. I'm taking the genre seriously. I'm taking the novel itself seriously and uh, just doing my best. So I've been really tickled at these last few books, especially I've been getting these rave reviews, which, you know, okay, you know, it's nice to be appreciated, but it's nice that they're all saying, wow, it's a long running series, but it's still good. So that's
0: what I'm going to try to do. And Keep you don't. <clears throat> there's no mandatory retirement age for writers. No, no. You know, as long as my cool. mind is working, which is a big if. I have
1: no short-term memory at all. I forget stuff. You don't know, have to write it down. I remember. You remember Sherry Lewis, the puppeteer? Mm-hmm. So she was a friend of ours, and I noticed anytime you tell her anything, she would write it down. Now well, I understand it. Now you know uh,
0: why. I know. I, I a calendar on the back door now because you're right. Short-term memory takes a hit. Yeah. Before yeah. we move to Ian and see if there are any questions, I wanted to ask you, um, because Jonathan and Faye's oldest son, Jesse, is a wonderful writer, um, yeah. sidelined partly by um, children, um, especially uh-huh. a dry set of twins and so forth. It's but Five kids. Right. I know. Well, come on. Who are you to talk? But nonetheless, um, Jesse lives up in uh, Northern California, and he and Jonathan have been have written several different things together, but they've been working on uh, the Clay Edson series, which is set up in Berkeley. So um, there wasn't one last year, but I have a note that there might be one this August. Is that indeed true? Yes, it's finished. It's called The Lost Coast. Oh yay! It's one of the best
1: books either of us have ever done. I mean, I it's a it's a problem for me. I need to try to convince Delaware readers to go all out for not They buy it, but not in the same numbers. This is a fantastic book. Faye read it, and she said, "This is really scary. This is really suspenseful." It's I think, and our editor said it's a masterpiece, and that's coming out in the summer. The Lost Coast.
0: And it's, uh, it's- I have fashion. it down for August and, yeah. you know, I haven't yeah. yet campaigned yeah. to have you both come here, but I will, yes, so yeah. don't, don't lose track. We're so happy, and now we're
1: plotting another one. We have a really good story for the next one. But uh, but this one, The Lost Coast, it was blood, sweat and tears. Yeah, it, it took a long time because we honestly, we started a different story and didn't like it. And we're like a hundred pages in, we decided, no, we don't like this. We're gonna go back and then, and then jesse had twins jesse and his wife had had twins so he's got five kids and so it was it was a little bit of a challenge but but we uh he powered through it and i powered through it wonderful uh, well wow. it's it just a great book i'm so happy with it so the ghost orchid i hope people like it there's a couple of more delawares that are finished basically because covid was a very productive time time for me my editor told me she goes john you wrote three books during COVID. Everyone, all the other writers withdrew and <laughs> freaked out. I said, I don't know, for me, it's, it's an excuse. You know, you're not going anywhere. Sit
0: down and write. So. I love it. Well, for those of you watching, I'm sure we will manage to contrive autographed copies of the yeah. summer book. Maybe even a visit from the authors or one of them. And let's call Ian back up to the screen and see if there are anybody, people watching may have asked questions or have comments even.
2: Yes, indeed. We have quite a few questions for you, Jonathan. (laughs) Okay. Uh, First, uh, fellow author Jonathan Santlaufer is in the chat of The Lost Van Gogh, and he just wanted to say that he loves your books and that they made him want to write crime fiction. Thank you so much. Thank you. I really appreciate that. He also has recommended two different books when you were talking about Hollywood, uh, the first uh, one that he recommends is Hollywood, The Oral History, which is all first-hand interviews from the very beginning of the industry to the present. And another one about the L.A. art scene called hmm. Everybody Thought We Were Crazy, which chronicles Dennis
1: Hopper and Brooke Hayward and how L.A. <laughs> I remember them. Thank you very much. I, and I will, I will definitely get to them. I have a huge, huge library of L.A. books in Southern California books and all kinds of esoteric stuff, but yeah, I, those I have not read, and I will thank you, Jonathan.
0: Beautiful. Jonathan is is an artist as well as an author, and you might be interested to know in his most recent book, The Lost Van Gogh, they published it with sketches at the back that Jonathan made. Um, oh, that's so cool! In the course of his research, I mean, they're not in the book, they're separate, you know, at the back, yeah. but. Um, he um he very carefully researches these books, so he was in yeah. France and the whole yeah. bit. Well, you know, I'm a painter too. You I do.
1: Right. Yeah. So I really can relate to that. Uh, I I may I work my way through college as the editorial cartoonist for the UCLA Daily Ruin.
0: I didn't know that.
1: But but for a cork of fate. My, my, my life might have gone a different way. I was doing a lot of caricatures and had done a, car- a caricature of Bobby Kennedy, but it didn't have a caption. So it was just hanging up in my office. And someone came in and said, that's a great picture of Bobby Kennedy. What are you going to do with it? I said, well, it's just, a, you know, it's a practice. It's just a, a caricature. So he says, there's a guy named William Buckley. He has a magazine called National Re- Review. He's doing a whole thing on Bobby Kennedy. So why don't you send him? I said, okay. I was 18 years old. And there was no internet. I just cold mail them this, this drawing, and I get a call from Priscilla Buckley, William Buckley's sister, managing editor, and they, she says, we're gonna use this as our cover. Wow. But before it goes to press, Bobby Kennedy is assassinated. Oh. Right before it goes to press. And it was a big epiphany to me. I, I'm I'm 18, I said, Thank God it didn't come out. I would have felt so bad. This poor guy was assassinated and I'm doing a cartoon of him, you know? Yeah. And then I realized that cartooning is a mean business. You seize on defect and you amplify it. That's 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 what you do. I said, I really don't want to do that for a living. I, I, I'm still gonna stick with the psychology part trying to help people. But who knows? If I had had a cover drawing at the age of 18, who knows, you know?
0: That's true. You might have gone in that direction. Right. Well, so Jonathan, thank you very, very much. Back to you, Ian.
2: First question. How did you select the title of The Ghost Orchid?
1: Well, I can't really answer that without giving away spoilers. Let's yeah. just say it's a strange flower. It's a mysterious flower. It comes from Florida in a very strange part of the Everglades. And it all figures into the plot.
2: Is it difficult having so many authors in your family?
1: No, just the opposite. It's fantastic. Uh, Faye and I knew each other for 13 years before either of us got published. So we were just like regular people, and then we got published. Both of us have doctorates in other fields. And people would always try to put a wedge in between us and go, "Uh, who's better or who makes more money and blah, blah, blah. And Faye would always say, it all goes in the same bank account. So that shut them up. But it, it, we've been very supportive uh, of each other. There's no jealousy. Faye and I have been together for 53 years. Love her madly. Uh, and then I didn't expect our kids were going to be writers. I mean, I, we have four children. Jesse was a bestseller before he wrote with me. He was an award-winning playwright. He won the Princess Grace Award for Best Young Playwright in America. He's a talented guy. My youngest, Aliza, is a writer. Uh, the two in the middle? Our psychologists. <laughs> so that's kind of So, you know, we didn't set out to plan any of it, but it's been wonderful because we all get along and we don't compete. And I've loved writing with my son. I didn't know how, how that was gonna go. It, it came about by accident, and we've managed to have so much fun writing, writing together. Uh Jesse also writes with Owen King, who is Stephen King's son. And they have a couple of comic books coming out and they're very good. good oh, do they? Yeah, yeah. It's, and there's a lot of film interest in this series. So he's doing other things too. That's great. Yeah. I that. very talented so guy. He's a talented guy. It's, it, it's like when you play in a band, you want to play with musicians who have chops, who are good. And that's the way it is writing with Jess. He's really a good writer. So it's easy to collaborate with him. I don't have to pull them along or any of that stuff. And we spent a lot of time discussing it and passing drafts. In fact, the other day, on Friday, we, were, we had a
0: long chat
1: about the next Clay Edison book.
0: Thomas Edison
1: was a bad guy, but Clay Edison's a great guy. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Good point, That's, let's not confuse them, right? I would like to say that we have had Jesse and Jonathan and Faye, and at one point, Lisa, Uh, all at the store at various times so it's like a whole color run family you know book event it's been great
2: one viewer is a school counselor and they say that the child developmental psychology was what drew you drew them to you in the first place one book they remember was partially set in a school will there be any others
1: time bomb was set in a in a, in a school. Well, one of the books Jesse and I wrote was, was set in a school. And I think actually the book we're talking about will have some relevance to a school. Uh, I really appreciate hearing from professionals because that's how I know I'm getting it right. When school psychologists and counselors and other psychologists and psychiatrists and cops tell me I'm getting it right, then I know I'm still getting it right. But I, I think people in mental health can appreciate the authenticity and they can relate to it. So thank you.
2: Would you ever do an Alex Delaware crossover collaboration with characters from another author, example, Tess Gerritsen or Meg Gardner?
1: Probably not, because as Faye said, it's a bad move. I mean, it's it's tempting. I had thought about it. But now that I'm already writing a book a year with Jess, how much more time do I have, you know? Uh, No one's asked me, (laughs) so who knows? I, I, you know what it is? I think that most writers like their private time. We're not collaborators by by nature. Jesse is more open to collaboration because his background was as a as a director and a playwright and an actor. He's used to collaborating, doing. Good things. But I remember it was like people got a bunch of us together once on a stage. I think it was me and Kuhn and Michael Connolly and someone else, and. And the MC said, okay, guys, talk among yourselves. It was like dead silence. Like, what are you gonna say? I like them, but it's like we're loners. We sit in a room and type. So I I would say most novelists probably like that alone time. You know. But I'm open to anything,
2: you know. Do you plan on writing Mm -hmm. any more children's books?
1: No. (laughs) I did it. Uh, it's, no, I, I, am really concentrating. I do two books a year now. I'm doing i I'm doing a Delaware. I'm doing a Clay Edison. I'll be 75 this summer. And, you know, I want a little spare time too. <laughs> Where does Faye write her novels? Well, Faye has retired. And so she wrote her last novel in her office, which is about, 200 feet west, uh, east of of mine. We have separate. It's a it, it's a fairly commodious house, and uh, she has her own office, and I have my own office. But Faye Faye has retired. She decided now she may change her mind, but for the for the, for the time being, she's she's
0: putting it aside. That's because of all the grandchildren. She's yeah. Says, she really dig. Right? We have
1: a dozen grandkids, and I said you really would you 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 really prefer. Picking grandkids up from school to writing bestsellers? she goes, Yes. <laughs> that's right. That's, that's Faye, you know. And I respect it. She had,
0: she had a wonderful and long, you know, run with her characters. And, yeah. you know, um, you never know. I don't. I'm, i never really believe writers will retire. Although Lee yeah, Child I'm is not trying prove sure. me, you know, wrong. But um, maybe you know, just t- setting aside for a while, having fun with the kids. You know, who knows what
1: might happen. I give her a lot of respect for going out on top. You know, it wasn't like she was, she was doing fine, and she just decided, I've had enough. I've been doing this. She may change her mind. Uh, one thing I know is that people change. Change their mind. I'll tell you a story. We have a vintage car. Uh, it is of a type that I always thought was pretty. And Faye said, oh, that's so ugly. And I said, okay. And then she saw one a few years later, said, that's so beautiful. And I said, you used to say they were ugly. She goes,
0: I've changed my mind. <laughs> Go Faye. I like that. Exactly. Yep. We all should be evolving constantly. Exactly. No, a good thing. Exactly. I love it. Open mind. Yep. Anything else, Ian? Oh, yes.
1: Do you spend any time in Florida? Uh, no. We really don't. I've been there. I've been to the Everglades several times. I've had an alligator on top of my head and all kinds of stuff. So I, I, I know of whence I speak, I've, I've been to these areas, but uh, we don't go there much now. I've been there several times, yeah.
2: Do you plan on going on a book tour anytime soon?
1: Nobody tours anymore since 9-11 and my publisher has no interest in touring me. So uh, probably not.
0: I'm working on it. Don't give up. If I do it for
1: anybody, it'll be Barbara. But
0: you know, I I want you and Jesse to come together. Maybe. Who knows? Maybe. Never say never.
1: You know. I know.
0: I know it's hard for prying you loose from you know where you are, but I want to give it one more shot at some point. (laughs) If, If I do it for anybody, it's you. Thank you.
2: You spoke about writing a lot during the pandemic. Yeah. Did your personal emotional feeling of that particular moment influence
1: the work? I'll tell you, I gotta be brutally honest. What I was telling Faye, I said, honey, you know, this is really a terrible situation for the world. It was a little scary at first because the first variants were killing people. I knew people who ended up who died, people who ended up in the on oxygen machine. So it was pretty scary. We couldn't get vaccines even though they were available. But compared to most people, it wasn't that big of a change for us. There were times before the pandemic when I did not leave my house for three four days. And I used to feel really guilty about it, like, why don't you get out a little bit? But we have a, we're lucky, we have a nice house and a big property, and we have all the stuff that we need here, very self-contained. And I, so for us, it was a change, of course, but not as big a change as for other for other people. So I just kept writing, basically. Um, actually, the interesting thing is I forced myself to get out of the house. What I would do around 12 o'clock 1 is take one of my cars out. No one was on the road. It was like L.A. in the 60s. And I'd go up some canyon in one of my cars and have a nice drive and think. So I actually got out more often than I used to prior to the pandemic. But it, it I, I was not depressed or I, I mean I feel bad for everyone else it was stressful it was a crazy time I think it was handled very poorly on many levels you know stupid stuff but uh the frustrating thing was here I was 70 years old when it broke out and and we couldn't get vaccines couldn't get vaccines it was crazy so that was a little scary but both of us have had COVID in later times when, you know, the natural history of a virus is to start off strong and weaken. Because if it doesn't weaken, it it dies out. If it kills its host, it has nowhere to go and it dies. So viruses, the real bad ones like Ebola never spread because they kill their host and then they die. So I got it a couple of years ago. It was like a three-day cold. You know, I was lucky. But no, I didn't have a big emotional response to it. I just... I had more time to work, so I did. You know,
2: Two more questions. Oh, sure. What type of books does your daughter write?
1: Well, our daughter wrote uh, when she was in 11th grade, she actually wrote a young adult novel with fame. She actually wrote it. That's how she spent, uh, instead of taking SAT tutoring, she, she wrote a book. So she's working on novel now. I would say her novels, she has a child too. And she's and she was working actually as a writer in the uh, in finance. She she was the head of the brand for a company for software companies. So she was doing a lot of professional writing in a nonfiction way, marketing and advertising. Did a very good job that she recently quit to concentrate on her son and her husband. And uh, I think I would characterize her books as. Not Chiclet, because she's, she's our younger. She's 31, much younger than our other kids. We had three, then we had one. And uh, she writes from the perspective of a woman that age, but they are suspenseful. She has a very quirky thing. I, I, I'm assuming she will get published at some point. We stay out of their lives. We don't get involved. Just like when we were the opposite of helicopter parents. When uh, when the kids started, I think, ninth grade, Faye and I made a joint decision. We're never going to attend a parent-teacher conference. They'll never see us at the school, ever. They're on their own. And I'm sure some people thought we were terrible parents. And when they applied to college, we said, apply where you want. You know, I'll pay for the tuition, but wherever you want. So we stay out of their lives unless they ask us.
2: And finally... The- how did you and Faye meet?
1: Oh, me? that's a wonderful story. Um, I had just broken up with the requisite crazy girlfriend that every everybody seems to have, and I'm sure it's a crazy boyfriend. And I was not interested in a relationship. And uh, my friend said, You know, there's this sports night, it was a Jewish student group, and he, I don't want to go. I said, I don't want to go. Nah, nah. I, the, not interested, but he, he schlepped me, he made me go. And it was in a gym of in a Jewish community center. And a bunch of guys are standing around. I'm going, what, what are they looking at? What, I think my exact words are, what are those idiots looking at? Uh, I was not in a good mood. And they said, oh, there's a new girl. And so, of course, I took a look. And there's this really gorgeous, without makeup, nothing, you know, playing volleyball. And I go, that's a gorgeous girl, I said but she looks 14 years old and I'm 21. So that's, that's they said, no, she's 18. I go, oh. So I found out who she was and I found out who knew her and I got someone to introduce us. And I, my parents ha- happened to be out of town. So I had the house to myself. So I, I try to pick her up. You wanna come over? I'll play guitar for you, Mr. Smooth. She says, sure. I think, oh, great. She brings 12 people with her, <laughs> Just hilarious. And then, you know, we just started talking. And then we started dating and my plan was to go to University of Chicago where I'd gotten in with a really good fellowship offer and get a motorcycle and not get married until I was 30. And here I am, I'm 21. And on my second date, I look across the table at Fay and I go, I had this crazy thought. I, I mean, I'm 21 and I go, not only is this the best looking girl I've ever gone out with, she is so smart. She's so smarter. she's smarter than I am. I said, if I marry her, we could have some really smart kids, <laughs> and three months later, we decided we're getting married. We got married at 19 and 22, and if you look at our wedding pictures, we both look very young, but especially Faye. She looked 14. I looked 18. People try to sell us credit schemes. I mean, we, we look like children. We both look so young. Faye still looks extremely young, and and uh, and that's it. Was a romantic, very romantic uh, Romeo. You know, we just we didn't tell our parents. We decided among ourselves that we're getting married. And then we did. <laughs> so that oh, was it. Thank you, Jonathan. They eight. said it wouldn't last.
0: <laughs> what, thank happened, you? Thank you. what happened to the University of Chicago?
1: Oh, yeah. Uh, face, you know, it was a great school. Bruno was yeah. there. And it was, I think, the second best psych. He goes, I don't want to live in Chicago. So I, I went to USC. <laughs>
0: So it changed your life in lots of ways. Right? Changed my
1: life in many ways. And it turns out that SC was a better choice because it was affiliated with Children's Hospital of Los Angeles, one of the greatest children's hospitals in the world. I got to do all my training there, and then they hired me. So it worked out great. Nice day You care. know,
0: a lot of crime novels are based on the really terrible decisions that people make when they're yeah. not. And I have to say that John really you know, had an incredibly fortunate trajectory. in that Very lucky. Yeah. very good well it wasn't all luck but you made very good decisions when you were young and you didn't have to spend <laughs> the rest of your life trying to repair it
1: well the, you know the, the decision that i made was to go after this this girl because it was like something happened to me when i saw her i said "She's said she's fantastic and then when i got to talk to her i said she's so smart she's an amazing person i still feel that way and we're best friends we hang out together and it's just you know, we've been together. We've been married. It'll be 52 years this summer. We will have known each other, 54 years. And, um, you know, I, 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 it's worked out. I, and I'm not saying it's always been smooth and perfect. Faye and I are both very dominant personalities. There's no, uh, you know, we're tough, both of us. So it, it took a while for us to get to learn how to get along. And,
0: and we do. <laughs> you do. You definitely do. I can say that having spent time with Faye and Jonathan Absolutely. outside professional circles, and it's really been um, it's really been a pleasure. Yeah. So, and I didn't make as many good decisions when I was young as John oh, did. Oh, you did fine. I think I I have ended up well. And my philosophy, based on all that, John, is that it's better to have a happy ending. And it is, you know, a happy oh, yeah. beginning. You, you've managed to do both, but I made plenty of mistakes in my life. I mean, well, but on the big and ones, I've done okay. And a couple of mine were not bad decisions, but a bad fate that, you know, they got yeah. me. But, you know, I've been, Rob and I have been married now for 33 years and we've oh, known good. each other for 35. So I feel, yeah. you know, um, we, we sort of hope that we would get to 50, which means I have to be 100. You'll do it. To be You'll do it. You'll do well, it. We're working on it. Anyway, thank that. you all very much for joining us this afternoon. It's been sort of an autobiographical <laughs> rather than a rather than a literary discussion, but I love talking to John because I never know for sure where we're going, and it's always it's always wonderful. And um, you know, it's a great way to visit with people. I will tell you, John, um, and you'll love this: that I had to go up to Mayo for a um, a voice evaluation. My voice oh. is somewhat deteriorating, and they said to me. That the only thing, there's nothing physically wrong, I'm overusing it, which is, you know, th- these conversations. Yeah. But while I was there, I said to them, maybe we should test my hearing because I have read that, you know, um, when you get to be 80 or so, that it's harder for your brain to adapt to things. And many people never adjust to hearing aids. And they fell on the floor laughing. And I sort of looked at them and they said, well, here's the thing. They said, We see mostly people who've retired and spend seven hours a day watching Netflix.
1: Exactly.
0: You have an active brain. They said your brain is so well exercised that you will not have any problem adapting to whatever it is that you need to adapt to. And I thought that's the great thing about doing what we're doing, right? We're not forced to retire. We can do it as we wish and we keep our brain moving very lucky, all the time.
1: Very lucky. I, I'm deeply appreciative uh, for how things have worked out. I'm deeply appreciative to people like you who've sold my books, and people who read my
0: books. I mean, I really, I really appreciate Me it. Me too. I'm very grateful for the people who read your books because that means they're <laughs> going to sell some when they get here. Very so, Mister Orchid, um, publishing on Tuesday. It's yeah. uh, I think the 39th. I tried to count Alex Delaware book. Be. Um, and we will have autograph copies very soon. So the thank you 40th, all for joining us. The 40th
1: and the 41st are done. I I'm know. was really true
0: when you said that. I love yeah. that. So love to Faye. Um, and thank you all very much. Thank you, Ian. And um, enjoy the rest of your Sunday. Bye, everybody. Thank you, Ian. Hello. We hope you're enjoying our programs and podcasts with authors. We'd like to expand them, and your help would be appreciated please make a donation at poisonedpenfoundation.org. 100% of the proceeds will go to help connect authors with readers in this difficult time. Thank you.